0: We are going to continue this morning in our uh, journey through the book of Genesis. We're in the last movement of the book of Genesis, looking at the life as told to the eyes of Joseph and his story. And so this, this morning, um, as we go and we hear the story of Joseph being betrayed by his brothers, this past week, uh, we heard the story of the dreams being given to Joseph. Uh, if that was the kind of the theme of this past week, this week is the dreams being shattered again and again, and like the brokenness and the, the, the unharmony in this family is just on full display in this particular passage. I think that before we dive into the passage, we ought to do something right quick with one another is ask the question about how are we supposed to read a story like this? How are we supposed to engage in a story of such loss and suffering and doubt and worry and I think that Scripture itself gives us the clearest framework or lens to view itself through. Um, and the, the, the frame that I think we're supposed to see this story of Joseph is through the, the framework of suffering before glory. We'll see this theme worked out in Scripture after Scripture and, and, and story after story in the Bible that suffering pre- precedes glory. And it's the kind of highway to glory, if you will. Um, I know that this is kind of a trite example, but kind of stick with me for a second. It's kind of like when I was growing up, um, I wanted an electric guitar. And so I went to my parents and I said, hey, I want uh, my first electric guitar. I've been listening to kind of rock music and I wanted to be able to sound like those bands I was listening to. And they said, well, what's wrong with the guitar that you have in your room that you haven't touched for two years? And what's wrong with that one? What's wrong with that acoustic guitar in there? But my dad uh, made me a promise he said, if you will learn to play one song, just one, this is a really high bar here, folks, just one song from beginning to end, I'll buy you an electric guitar. And with that promise in mind, with that kind of framework in my own head, I was willing to kind of suffer, if you will. It's more like my parents suffering listening to me play. Uh, But I was willing to go through all the hardship to get calluses on my hands. If you've ever learned to play an instrument, it's challenging, right? You're going to use muscles in your fingers you've never done before. You're going to hurt your own ears doing things on the instrument you're trying to play. It's going to be rough for you a little bit, right? But if you have a promise like this in mind, like I did with my dad, I knew that there was something better on the other side of this. See, at the end of the book of Genesis, we're giving a framework that we need to keep in our minds as we're reading through the story of Joseph. Joseph speaks to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis in Genesis 50, verse 20, and he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, we can use this framework to understand the stories of pain and suffering and chaos that we're about to see in the life of Joseph and his family. What he and his brothers and other men mean for evil, God means for good. So we saw with last week that Joseph could do with a good dose of humility, and God certainly is going to do that in this story, that can lay him low. But more than that, God's sovereignty in working in and through sin and suffering is on display. At the hands of him suffering abuse, even at the hands of his brothers, it's going to bring about good purposes for him his family, and ultimately the entire world. As we slowly walk through this story today, we're going to see and be confronted with two big, hard truths, that God is sovereign over our suffering and that God is sovereign over sin. Those are hard truths that we don't like having to grapple with, but this text puts them on display and ultimately is to show us that this is ultimately good news. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in Genesis chapter 37. Uh, We're going to be in verse 12, so you can grab your Bibles, turn them on, or uh, there's some black hardback Bibles at the back of the room back there. If you grabbed one of those on the way in and you don't own a Bible, consider that Bible our gift to you. Um, We're going to start in verse 12 here. If you weren't here this past week, um, just a quick recap, Joseph is... Favored by his father. His brothers hate his guts. He's given dreams by God instead of keeping those things to himself. He tells his brothers, and it creates even more division in his family. He's an arrogant kid, right? He's hated. He's hated like Toby uh, is hated by Michael. Like his brothers hate him that much. Like he really, really is hated big time. He's an arrogant kid, and all his brothers are marked by all this anger. And Jacob continually is giving us lessons and what not to do with our children and showing preference over them, right? He's given us plays in the playbook of like, don't ever do this. And he doesn't stop. That's exactly how this story begins with Jacob sending out Joseph to report on his sons again. Let's pick up the story in, in verse 12 together. Genesis 37, verse 12 reads like this. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem Come I will send you to them And he said to them Here I am So he said to him Go now see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring it bring me word So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem And a man found him wandering in the fields And the man asked him What are you seeking He got lost I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, must have heard this happen. They've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Let's stop there for right now. So the way the story starts is again, yes, this complete lack of wisdom in Jacob. We had an entire week last week where Jacob's idea to put Joseph ahead of his brothers, give him this robe, give him all this power and authority over his other brothers, it's not going well, and Jacob is just sticking with the game plan. Like, come on, man. Like, you've already seen how this is produced, this, this unity in your family. Why are you keeping this up? But Jacob just continues to walk in this lack of wisdom. But then we also see the willingness of Joseph it, it, he might be an arrogant young kid, but at least he's obedient to his father. He goes out, he looks for his brothers, but what happens to him? He gets lost, right? And this is way before they had find my friends on your phone, right? Way before phones in general. He couldn't just call them and be like, yo, where you at? Which Walmart are you, parking lot are you hanging out in, right? To his older brothers. He couldn't just go find them by some other means. He's helpless. He's hopeless to find them. And so what we have is this unnamed man who apparently overheard the conversation of the brothers who point him in the right direction to eventually find them. Now, we might ask ourselves here, like, why are we given these details? And I think it's to remind us of God's sovereignty yet again. See, Joseph could have gone out looking for his brothers, not found them. No one comes to find him. He wanders around in the field for a little bit, right? You can just imagine him doing laps in a big field somewhere and then coming back home and be like, yeah, I couldn't find them. Like, I, I couldn't find them. I don't know where they went. We're going to have to wait till they come back. And we wouldn't have the story that we do now. No, but we have God's sovereignty working on display here. God sends and appoints this man who remains nameless in this story to show that he is going to send Joseph willingly to his brothers, knowing what's about to happen to him. Let's pick up the story and see where this story really takes a dark turn in verses 18 through 24. They saw him from afar. These are his brothers. They see him from afar. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then they will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see that what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. The robe of many colors that he wore. And as they took him, they threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. See, as his brothers see Joseph approaching him, they start conspiring against him. They start making a quick plan. And the quick plan has two elements. Let's grab him and get him and kill him. This is how much their hatred had grown for their brother. And this kind of sounds like a story we've heard before, right? About brothers alone in a field together. Maybe Cain and Abel's ringing in your mind a little bit in this. And notice what they say about Joseph. They don't call him by his name. They call him this dreamer. Like it's a curse. Like it's a derogatory phrase about him. They'd associated their brother with his gifting more than his actual name here. In effect, they say, let's kill this dreamer, throw him into a pit, and then lie about it before our father. They even say this in verse 12. Look at verse 12. They say, We will see what becomes of his dreams. Here you have to wonder do they think that what they're doing is taking the plan of God and changing it to their own will? They had no doubt heard the stories from Jacob and his forefathers about the promises of God that rested on their family, that God had chosen them as this select family by which he was going to bless the whole world, do they think that through their actions they can thwart the very plans of God? They seem to even be testing God here. That's a very dangerous place to be. But then we have Reuben who pipes up. Reuben suggests to them not to kill his brother, but to just throw him in a pit. What do we make of Reuben's suggestion here? Is Reuben altruistic here? He says he wants to bring, bring him back to his father in peace. He wants to bring him back and present him before his father there. He even has this plan of rescue for him. But I think if we are reading this whole story all together, like we've seen all through the book of Genesis, Reuben has already fallen out of grace with his father. Reuben has left. Uh, he, he, at one time, was going to be the inheritor of the, uh, of, of the, the status of the patriarch in the line of Jacob. But Reuben has fallen out of grace because of his sin. He slept with his stepmother, and Jacob knew about it. He's fallen out of grace here. He's like the politician who's going to say to his father and say to his brothers, whatever it takes to kind of get what he wants, he has his own interest in mind. He's trying to be and gain good status back for himself, not out of love for his brother but trying to gain status back for himself before his father. See, Reuben is scheming here. So far, things seem, seem to be falling into place. They act on the plan to throw him in the pit, but before they do, they take Jacob and they strip him of the robe. The thing that had signified his significance before his father the thing that was probably very envious in their eyes because of how illustrious it was of, of his status and glory in the eyes of his father. They take the rope off of him, and Jacob is thrown into this pit. Now, it was after about the 50th time of reading the word the pit, the pit, the pit, again and again, I couldn't help of that Andy Dwyer classic, I fell into the pit, the mouse rat classic, you know, I fell into the pit. Like, again, it just rings in my head again and again. And so if that's what you've got in mind, this big, open, like, Parks and wreck. they're building like a foundation of a building pit, kind of throw that image out of your mind. This was not like an open, big, open pit thing, right? This would have been something more than likely. The word that's used here is cistern for the pit. This has been a water-keeping device in, in, in the ancient world It would have likely had a really small opening at the top. Think of it being almost like water bottle shaped inside. Small opening at the top, a little bit bigger at the bottom. You would have lowered a bucket down in this thing to get water out or scoop it out over time. It was used to keep water, and there's no water in this thing. If they throw him into this pit, you know what's going to happen? He's going to be hurt. It's going to be dark He's not going to be able to see out of it because very likely they're going to roll a stone back over the top of this pit so that he can't even see sunlight. So here we have Joseph, the the son with the dreams, the son of the promise, the, the exalted son here who had the love of his father been sent on a mission by him and he's in a pit, in darkness, likely bleeding, hurt. And let's just pause here for a second and also say, Beyond the physical suffering that Joseph has here, think about the emotional trauma that you would go through in a process like this. Not only have you been taken by your brothers, captured like their slave, captured like their prisoner of war, but you've been thrown into a pit, cast off as worthless in their eyes, and they're plotting the way to kill and murder you right outside of the pit. This would have been absolutely like life-altering for Joseph. This would be something he would be recovering from psychologically for years. See, what do we do with a moment like this? What do we do with a story of such brokenness like this? We do what we said at the beginning. We frame this with the end in mind like we said at the beginning. We can see that in this story, God's sovereignty over their sin. The sin of the brothers and God's sovereignty over Joseph's suffering. Because what they have meant for evil, God means for good. We can take it to the bank. But right now, at this point in the story, do you think Joseph is thinking that? No. All he sees is his present circumstance. The only thing he could cling to in a moment like this, and we're not given any notes on what Joseph was believing at this moment, but it, his only hope could be to be rescued by the God by which gave him these dreams. And he would cling to the dreams that which God gave him. See, we're not told what Joseph is thinking, but we are told what the brothers are plotting. And the story continues in, in, at, in, in verse 25 with meal and them plotting his ultimate betrayal over meal. Let's continue in verse 25 together. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it that we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand fall upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And the Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. See, the the irony of them setting down to a meal to plot the ultimate betrayal and selling Joseph into slavery uh, should not be left uh, uh, unnoticed by us. At the end of the story of Joseph, uh, the, the, the ultimate coming together in God's rescue plan for those brothers, of Joseph bringing them and rescuing them, but not after toying with them for a while, also happens around a meal. As they sat down for this meal to eat, they see a caravan traveling with precious things down to Egypt. And it's also significant that there's Ishmaelites that they ultimately sell them to. These would be destined relatives of theirs, But then Judah pipes up with his idea. Reuben seems to be out of the picture here at this moment. And Judah says, hey, instead of worrying about how to deal with his dead body and cover up and conceal all that blood and figure out what to do, let's just sell him. Let's profit from this situation. Why not make some money here? See, this entire scene. Is blending callback after callback after callback from the, the story of Genesis so far, but mainly rooted in Genesis 1 through 3. Hear these things kind of pulled out from the text. First, the food here, the meal that they are setting around. See, the very first betrayal that happened in our affections before God and our forefathers, Adam and Eve, happened around a meal, it was looking at the fruit in which our hearts became entranced with something other than God. It was a meal by which the first betrayal happened, and then this also happens around a meal. The words see, take, happen here, this pattern of Adam and Eve seeing the fruit and taking it. They see the caravan, then they take Joseph away to Egypt. Even the language that Judah would use of come, let us do this, walks in the very words of God at the Tower of Babel, the very words of God in the creation of man and woman in his image and saying that, come, let us. He is voicing almost in the place of God. Here I'm speaking in a way where I'm using authority over this image bearer of God. He speaks of his brother's blood. The plan to kill their brother and conceal his blood, much like the murder that happened between Cain and Abel and his brother's blood crying up from the ground for uh, vengeance, crying up from the ground for justice to be done by God. And he uses the words, he is our brother, our own flesh, even echoing his first father, Adam's words, saying to Eve, she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. All of these callbacks culminate into this phrase at the end saying, his brothers listened to him like Adam listened to the voice of his wife. This story is told using all of this imagery, all these themes of everything coming before it, and we need to see this church as God's sovereignty over his word. God's sovereignty in the way in which scripture would be penned, showing to us God's plan is on display here. He is sovereign over suffering. He's sovereign over sin. Unlike when Reuben speaks his plan, we are told that all the brothers listen to Judah's plan. They pull him up out of the pit, they sell him for 20 pieces of silver, and Joseph is taken to Egypt. Let's see how this episode ends in verses 29 through 36. When Reuben is returned to the pit, he saw that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without... Doubt torn in pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard. See, when Reuben realizes that his plot to gain a position for himself again is thwarted, what does he do? He tears his robes. He's in great distress, but was he great distress over? My plans didn't work. My plans to gain power, position, authority for myself didn't work. How much of us is just like us here? When our plans... To gain anything for ourselves don't work. Who's the first person we think about? Do we think about our sin? Do we think about our wrong motives? No. We think about ourselves. Ah, my plans have been thwarted. What I wanted is not coming to pass here. See, Reuben then gets on with the program, realizing his plans are dashed, and joins with the brothers in this plan to fool his father. And what do they do? They take that robe, which they had stripped off of their brother, the robe that represented how much Jacob loved his son. And they take that robe and they spill blood all over it. Now we're removed from a society like this. It's easy. I mean, it's almost like in our own minds when we read something like this, that we just think they went to the the blood store and they bought some blood and then they put it on the coat, right? They had to go out among the flocks that they were shepherding themselves. They had to choose one of those goats. They had to take it back to wherever they were very likely slit its throat and then use that blood, making a sacrifice in order to put blood on that robe to show their father and try to fool him. And the plan works. The plan works. There's a lot of plotting. There's a lot of scheming here. There's a lot of forethought that go into this thing. But do they lead Jacob with anything? No. All they do is put that bloody robe in front of their father and his absolute he just loses it in front of his sons he tears his clothes but more than that more than like reuben he puts on sackcloth see we're removed for a society like this too when people would put on sackcloth this was putting on a garment that was to represent your emotional state it would be uncomfortable i don't know if you've ever like picked up on this but sackcloth doesn't sound very comfortable to wear right I mean, how many of you are wearing like some type of cotton something? You got some great underwear on. You got like a nice shirt, right? Things are comfy. We wear things because they're comfy. He's putting on clothes because they're not comfy, right? To represent the distress, to represent his anguish. A lot of times people would even put dust and ashes on their own body to represent, I have been completely undone. This represent I'm embodying on the outside the way I feel On the inside. See, Jacob mourns Joseph as dead in Sheol, the place of the dead. See, in the ancient mind, Sheol was the place that all souls went to be after death. It was like the eternal holding tank, waiting for the day of the Lord to come and render judgment. It was it was a place of just despair because if you're in Sheol, You're not alive. You're beyond the land of the living. And that's what Jacob mourns Joseph as. He mourns him as dead in Sheol. But you notice what happens to Jacob. His whole family says all his children come up, right? All his sons and daughters rise to comfort their father. But Jacob rejects their comfort. No, he says this, I shall go down to Sheol mourning. The rest of his life, he's saying, in effect, is going to be one that is marked by mourning this loss, by grieving this loss of his son. Now, here on a Mother's Day morning, I know that there's very few of us in the room that have likely experienced the loss of of an adult child. But there are many of us here in the room that have experienced the loss of children, where you have grieved the loss of someone that's close to you. Maybe you feel a little bit like Jacob here. The overwhelming display of emotion shows just how much Jacob loved his boy. There's something we need to say about grieving well in a day and age where we often want to blow past death as a terrible reality, as a result of sin and the fall, where we don't want to engage in those emotions, and so many of us just stuff them down We need to learn something about mourning and grief from Jacob here. See, we should grieve the death of our loved ones. Grieving, the loss of those we love, is a healthy part of processing our emotions. Remember, we are made in the image of God, in his likeness. And he He gave us emotions. If we were not to be made in the image of God, we would not be gifted with emotions like God. In his personhood, they are a good gift for us. Not to be worshipped, not to be given into completely and entirely, right? They shouldn't rule us, but they are a good gift to us. See, the invitation here from Jacob's entire family, seeing the the absolute grief of their father, was to accept their comfort and possibly experience a healing moment. But instead, Jacob rejects this moment rejects the healing that could come and grieves himself and gives himself over to grieving without hope. Look again at verse 35 with me. He says, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. He's saying the rest of my life till the day I die. I will, this will define the rest of my life, his mourning for his son. Maybe you are here this morning and you feel like Jacob, You feel like because of your experience, whether it was sin done against you or suffering that you've experienced in life, you feel a little bit like Jacob, like this thing in my life that's happened to me or someone did against me, it's going to define me for the rest of my life. Maybe you're not as honest and vocal about it as Jacob here saying, now I'm going to go down to Sheol, suffering, mourning. No, no. Maybe we're not as forthright as that. But I want to to tell you this morning, because of this story, because of what we've seen in it, that God is sovereign over sin. He's sovereign over suffering. There is hope. See, the reason why there is hope is because this story doesn't end with Jacob's mourning, his son as dead. It ends with a reminder that God has kept his son alive. Look at verse 36 again. Meanwhile, while Jacob mourned, meanwhile, while his brothers had gotten away with their plan, meanwhile, God had another plan. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. God had kept his child alive. Joseph was still living here. What his brothers meant for evil, God is going to use for good. See, this story points far beyond itself to the truth that in the midst of sin and suffering and even death, we do not grieve without hope. The reason we can grieve without hope is because this isn't the only story where a son was sent to his brothers and they wanted to kill him. Jesus was the son of God sent by his father and he came to his own and they received him not. Jesus was taken by his brothers, mistreated and rejected, like Joseph. And like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed and sold for 20 pieces of silver. He was handed over to foreigners, and instead of being placed in a borrowed pit to fill up water in the wilderness, he was laid in a borrowed tomb, all according to the sovereign plan of God. See, what they did to Jesus... They meant for evil, but God meant it for good. The good news is that Jesus rose again from the pit of death, and he's now exalted in heaven and believing in him, grants us hope beyond our grave, beyond our sin, beyond our suffering that we've experienced. And so we do not grieve without hope, church. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the offer on the table for you. Are you grieving without hope? Are you grieving the loss of something in your life? Are you grieving sin done against you? Are you grieving the hopelessness of a situation that you might be facing? God is offering the opportunity to grieve, but not without hope. To live as fully human, made in the image and likeness of God, with dignity, value, and worth, but having our hopes set on Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul sums it up like this for us. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And Paul roots us in our hope here. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is the hope that we can cling to in the light of this passage. If God can cause the greatest act of human violence and wickedness and sin and suffering that happened to the very Son of God, how much hope can we have for our own present situations? How much hope can we have for ourselves in the midst of our suffering when we know that our Savior experienced suffering in our place? How much hope can we have for ourselves in the midst of our own sin, whether it's our own sin or sin done against us? When we know that the Son of God suffered for sin so that we can be reconciled back to God and actually know Him as Father. We can have great hope in, our, in the presence of our own suffering and our own sin because we can cling to the hope of God's good plans even when we do not understand man's evil. See, what God doesn't ask us to do in the, lo- in the middle of our suffering is to make light of it. Remember Joseph in this story. He literally cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel in the pit that he's been thrown into. He cannot. He is being welcomed to trust the God who has revealed himself to him. Trust the God who's shown him this glimpse of glory beyond himself. He's been invited to trust a God who has shown his character over time, yet is sovereign over sin suffering in his own life. See, maybe you're struggling with the reality of sin in your own life, and you question why you, you have experienced so much suffering in your own life. Today, God is inviting us to trust him. Today, God is inviting you to trust him in the middle of your circumstances, not being able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but to trust the God who's going to lead you through it.